Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now I'm a southern child, southern child, down in Everybody knows where I was born. Well, I 
You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Presented by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. This week sounds a little bit different, at least with your host. Uh, Andrew is not on this week's episode. Had a couple things come up, so it's going to be me and Michael here. And uh, we have a guest that we're very, very excited about, uh, Greg Skufka from Pressure Deer Pro. Uh, thank you, Greg, for coming on. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I appreciate you guys bringing me on. Kind of excited about it. Oh, we're super fired up for this. But before we dive into it, Mike, how are you? Good, man. Doing good. Just good, man. Yeah. <laughs> Living the dream. Living the dream. Beautiful. Absolutely love it. Well, Greg, you know, we're excited to have you on here. Uh, I'm excited to kind of talk about some of the topics that will be had on this podcast, um, which is going to have to do a lot with looking branches and scrapes. Um, it's the perfect time of the year, uh, at least in my opinion, to kind of start thinking about this. But I know probably you, you probably think about this 365 days a year. Uh, but Greg, can you just give us a little rundown of kind of who you are? What is your background when it comes to whitetail hunting and also the region of the country that you're coming in from? Yep, yep. So I'm in Michigan in the Midwest, you know, one of the most heavily pressured states in the country. And uh, uh, so I've been deer hunting really mainly in Michigan, but in uh, Kansas, South Dakota, Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, done a lot of hunting. But one of my things I've spent a lot of time in 10 years of, I guess you call it experimentation, is figuring out how to create primary breeding scrapes that work. You can actually harvest mature bucks off of them. Um, and so that's probably the most significant thing that I've been spending a lot of my time on. But the other thing is developing property to have more bucks on it and minimize buck dispersions from your property. A lot of people don't realize that they have one really, really good buck on their property. He's the big one. He may not have the biggest antlers, but he's got the biggest body. He may run off all your good bucks. And uh, there's ways to minimize that and how you develop your property. And that's the other thing I do. Absolutely. Well, we're going to kind of dive into this. Um, of course, you know, Bill highly recommended you, Bill Vale from, of course, <laughs> Pressure Deer Pro, who we had on a couple yep. weeks ago, highly recommended you to come on the show. Um, he was actually, before I had even interviewed, or we had even interviewed Bill, uh, he was talking about you and actually doing some research. Uh, I was like, man, Greg sounds like a perfect guest to be, come on the show. So I'm glad we're finally here having this conversation. Uh, but we're going to talk a lot about primary scrapes. And maybe to start us off, can you talk to us and explain what is a primary scrape and what's the difference between that versus, you know, some of the other scrapes guys might see in the woods that some people may call right. a testosterone scrape or something like that? Well, there's really two basic kinds of scrapes. There's secondary scrapes, which are made randomly by any age group, age class of buck, and they make it anywhere where there's an overhanging branch. It can be along a food plot, it can be along a woods edge. You find them all over the place. Those are ones that some people, you may end up with a big one at a certain location. People may hunt over that and never see a buck because that's not one that's necessarily part of their routine. And, and particularly when the seeking phase is going on, that's when you really want to make sure you're on a primary breeding scrape because that's where the action's going to be. Now, a primary breeding scrape is usually chosen. It's choose, chosen by one of the mature bucks on the property. He picks a spot. You know, why does he pick that spot? Well, he knows where the does are. He knows where the food is and he's going to intercept them. So he's going to pick that location where he can be safe and he can scent check it before he comes into it to check it. So those are the things that happen. So a lot of times people will find a primary breeding scrape in the woods. It'll be a really big scrape. It'll have an overhanging branch that's broken off. You can tell it's all chewed on and it's got all kinds of scars on the branch itself. 
that's what that's what I call a primary breeding scrape. The does will urinate in that scrape. The bucks will on their on their hawks, and and that's where the action comes. Lots of times, those mature bucks will bed downwind of those within sight. So when you come in there and you find one, they've seen you and you've already been busted. So there's lots of reasons why when you find a, a primary scrape like that, it's difficult to hunt them because the buck chose the location. When I do a setup, I get to choose the location. So I choose it where I have the advantage as a hunter. Very interesting. Now, I've got to ask this because some, some listeners are probably wondering this. <clears throat> is primary scrape another name for a community scrape? Or is that kind of hand in hand? Is that like a synonym, or is that just something totally different from your perspective and your opinion? Um, well, my approach is based on what I call the communal effect. What the heck's that? That's kind of crazy. The communal effect means the fawns, the does, the young bucks, the middle-aged bucks, and the and the mature bucks all hit those branches in that location. When a when a mature buck makes a scrape in the woods, it's he makes it that fall right? He's going to make it maybe in October, maybe in November. It just depends when he makes it. So not a lot of deer are hitting that scrape or that branch. So there's not a lot of scent there, right? Mm -hmm. When I do, when I think about a community scrape, like you mentioned, it's one that my setups have at least eight licking branches in them. Because um, let me give you a quick example. Minerals, for example, most of us, you can't put out minerals in every state now, but where you can, you put out a mineral block and a, and a bachelor group comes in, what happens? Only one buck gets a lick on that mineral block and then they leave. The dominant buck will go in there and lick and the rest of them they'll leave, right? So what I do now is I put three or four in one place so everybody gets minerals because you want every buck to be healthy and grow big antlers, right? Mm -hmm. So same thing applies to a, a, a primary scrape setup like I do. There's eight branches. I've had seven three and a half year olds and older come into one of my sets and they all went to their own branch. So I got seven deer worth of scent left on those branches just from that group coming in. Does the same thing. I sent you a picture of, uh, mm -hmm. of one branch. There's five does in that picture, right? And they're all, they all want to do it. And one last thing on this is fawns. I've had fawns literally jumping on their hind legs trying to get to the branch because we've been taught six footish. Well, I'm now saying the optimum height is five foot six. And I also have some at four and a half because a fawn has scent just like adult deer do. Right. So they love. I mean, I have a lot of fun watching the fawns hit the branches. I mean, it's pretty entertaining, actually. So I just had an aha moment uh, last year. I'd put out a scrape, made my own mock scrape. That same actual morning, I ended up having a buck come in. He went uh -huh. to where I'd made the mock scrape and he smelt it. But he went back across the probably 10 foot, found a vine on a tree and he made that one his and i didn't realize that that's what was going on it's interesting yeah so what do you think so when you make a mock scrape or a primary breeding scrape like i do what do you think the first thing is that gets a deer to hit one of those branches hmm. it's totally visual right so i'm going to explain later in this podcast how you set this up and what are the key attributes of a licking branch setup that makes it very visual after a visual and a deer chews on that branch or rubs his glands and his forehead on it. Now there's two things that attract a deer to that location, scent and visual. So both of those are key as you develop your scrape setups. Oh, I love this already. Yeah, I love I this already. We're only like six, we're only like nine minutes yeah, into it. I'm, I'm, I'm like excited. Of, lots of good stuff so far. <laughs> so, so Greg, to, before we kind of dive into, again, the weeds of everything, can you talk about 
how did you get to this point of your hunting career when it comes to your knowledge of scrapes? What were some of those learning curves early on and how did you put things together? Um, that's a great question. I've been working on it for 10 years. I, if, if there's any approaches to putting licking branches out, including ropes with grapevines, grapevines, any kind of branch you're talking about, I've done all that. I've even got, you know, the, uh, fiberglass rods you can get from tractor supply to mark your driveway when they're going to plow the snow. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even used those, drilled those into rods and attached branches to them that way. One of the things you might be asked is why do you want to attach a branch? Well, you want to attach a branch for two reasons. I want to put it where I want to put it, but I also want to use the right branch. There's a whole bunch of difference in the types of branches and what work and what doesn't. And I can talk about that at some point as well. Oh yeah, we're we're gonna get into that. So that, that's interesting. So you, this has just come about from just your personal experience and kind of putting things together and some testing and, and seeing what kind of worked over years of experience. Yeah, and and the other thing is I run uh, way too many game cameras. I run eighteen cameras almost year round on my property. So I'm I I look at probably more videos and more pictures than anyone. And watching the deer and what they do is really really an interesting way to learn. Mm-hmm. And building upon what they like to do, um, I've got one video of this was uh, December second three years ago. I had a probably 150 inch eight point, which is a good eight point. Two days after rifle season ended in Michigan. Michigan rifle is vicious. I mean, no deer don't move. Well. Two days after season ended, this this big eight point came into one of my setups, and there's a lot of leaves on my setups because I cut the branches when the leaves was down, and he stuck his face right up into those branches. You couldn't even see his face, and just just rubbed it all in there. What's really interesting, he then went three, and this was at nine thirty in the morning. He went three hundred yards to another setup I had and did the same thing, and then I never saw him again. Hmm. After, another camera picture of him after that. So he could have been shot second day of after rifle season ended. Wow. The ball. So anyway. Well, let's kind of, di- I want to kind of dive into this a little bit. Um, you know, first off, what are some of the biggest mistakes you think guys make when it comes to trying to make their own mock scrapes, especially when you see people that just aren't having success using mock scrapes? Well, where you put them is really, really important. And the height of the branch is important. And we're going to start to get into the details. You have to have a hard edge. You know, what's a hard edge? If you're in a thicket and you walk out into a clearing, that's a hard edge, right? So that's why a branch coming onto a food plot out from the edge of it that's got like tag altars or brush Hmm. works very effectively. And it doesn't even really matter what branch type that is because that's usually a secondary scrape. Um, If you talk about food plots and, and putting scrapes along food plots, food plots are very difficult to kill a big buck on, especially in pressured states. Um, so what I tend to do, if I don't have a perfect entrance and exit to us, to a, a food plot where I can sneak in and out without getting busted, because over a season, three or four times you get busted by a couple of deer, pretty soon they all know you're there and the big one won't ever come out in daylight. So what I tend to do is I give them the food plot and then you ask yourself, well, where am I going to hunt then? Right? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Well, you've got a transition zone coming from the bedding area where the bucks hang up. Why not set up a primary breeding scrape right there, right? So location, doing a setup like that is is very, very effective. I would much rather you don't see as many deer, right, than sitting on a nice food plot where you got deer out there eating for hours. It's a, it's a wonderful time to hunt like that, but I'm really after one animal typically. Mm. Well, excellent. Well, let's kind of dive into this. Uh, I, I think, 
you know, I know I'm very interested in hearing more about this and, and kind of hearing your steps and the different aspects that makes you be successful using these primary scrapes um, in, in a way that like from just some of the things I've read about you and also I've heard from Bill, it sounds a little bit different than what you're seeing across the board. And especially one of the things I think that you've mentioned already that I find very interesting is having at least roughly, you know, eight licking branches as being yep. a part of that setup. And I know you have a proprietary, um, you know, mock scrape um, hanging system for your licking branches, which is really I interesting. I call my brackets. It's really, it's really not that complicated. It's just a way of putting using two two wood screws, deck screws, mm -hmm. into the branch through an angle that's mounted on a T-post, and you got two of those, and, and you mount your branches that way. So in, in that whole setup, I can go into in detail here at some point, yeah. Absolutely. So let's do this. I want to break it down from the kind of the beginning. First off, when it comes to a little bit more about just primary scrapes, is there a go-to, because, you know, I know you're coming from, like, your private form where you have this, you know, access, and it's kind of you and your family on the property. But is this something that people can also do on, on public land, you think, and implement this in, in areas maybe that are kind of overlooked by other people or areas that Buck's going to kind of suck into, uh, come to run? This, you know, so the biggest risk you have when you go on state land is somebody messing with your setup, right? But but typically, you can you can create primary scrapes anywhere. It doesn't matter whether it's state land or private. You just got to get away from the other people. And if you do, you know, so the deer aren't nocturnal pressured. If any deer gets pressured too much, I don't care how good your scrape setup is, it's not going to work, right? Managing pressure on your property is really, really important. How do you access your stands? When do you access your stands? Do you go in early? Do you go in after daylight? All that has to be thought through because based on Bill's calendar, believe it or not, there's a lot of really important information in it that tells you, by the way, the bucks are going to be on the food until seven, eight o'clock. You don't have to go in so early today, mm -hmm. right? Or they're going to be bedded at five o'clock. So you can't hunt that spot in the morning because if you go in, you're going to get busted. You know, so there's things like that that are uh, really important. Absolutely. Well, so let's, let's hit it from this angle then. Uh, when it comes to looking at, say you're looking at your own piece of private land or maybe a guy's going on public land, on average, how many primary scrapes do you think you can put out based off, I guess, deer density, but also just, you know, acreage? Sure. sure. I have a very distinct, uh, and I've gone through a uh, iteration on this. When I first started doing these about five years ago, the way I'm doing them now, four years ago, I kept wanting to put out more and more. And what I found is it diluted the effect of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Too much of a good thing. You're trying to figure out what day he's going to be on what bracket, right? What primary scrape setup. If you have too many of them, it dilutes the whole thing. It's too random. So I tend to have, uh, let me talk a little bit about property development. So my, my first book, um, Monster Whitetail Magnet, it really talks about how do you develop a piece of property? So my property is 280 acres. I broke it into five quadrants, 480s and a 40. So it can be, it can be smaller acreage. And what you do is, you develop each of those quadrants like they're an individual property. Now, why Now, why would you do that? Well, because if you have a dominant buck, he can control that whole acreage, right? So I use the bar theory. So let's say you have one bar in this community, this deer community, one bar, all skies. We all go to the bar, right, to get the girls. There's one big bad dude there, and you get in a fight, you get your butt kicked, so you leave. Well, that's buck dispersion off your property, right? So, well, what if you have a bar in each of your quadrants, right? There's sanctuaries, there's food, there's water, there's girls, there's minerals, and so on and so forth. It's a high, high stem count density. If you have 
So on my property, I have five bars. And the other thing is when you have the best habitat in a section, even though you may harvest a lot of your good bucks, the next year you have more that come in because they come in from other areas. Um, so anyway, so getting back to your question about how many is too many, and there is, that's a great question. It depends. It depends on, upon the deer density. That's a great point you made, right? But I typically don't do more than one or two per quadrant. I've got seven primary scrape sets on 280 acres. Now, the thing is, is my best setup last season, and, and this gets into the wind rule and the wind and being able to so you set your primary scrape up so you can't get busted, right? But the buck can still come in and scent check it. So you have to have some kind of barrier that protects you, right? Mm -hmm. Well, my best stand last year had two really, really dandy bucks in, in daylight multiple times during the day on a bracket set the 30th and 31st of, of November last year. I never hunted that stand the entire season. The wind was never right. So another mistake people make is hunting a stand when the wind is wrong. And that's really, really cr critical. So, you know, two, one to two for 40 acres is good. You go more than that, I think you're gonna, it's gonna impact the effectiveness of the sets. This podcast is supported by Hunting Exchange. Now, Hunting Exchange, if you haven't heard, is an app for iOS and Android that is your one-stop shop to buy and sell all of your used hunting equipment. Now, the great thing about this, especially as a buyer, you can go on there and find some great deals on used equipment from other outdoorsmen from across the country. One great thing you go on there, unlike social media platforms like what you would find on, say, like Facebook, you can actually go on Hunting Exchange and find some great deals on bows, tree stands, saddles, technical apparel, knives, broadheads, the whole nine yards, really. One great thing about it is, again, it's secured and supported by PayPal. So when you go on, all your purchases are insured through PayPal, so you can buy with confidence. Now, the great thing is also as a seller, you can go on there and be a part of a great network of other outdoorsmen and be able to go on and sell whatever gear you'd like and be able to reach more people without having to worry about being banned or blocked on social media platforms like what we see on Facebook. Again, it's a great place to go, purchase your gear, and also connect with other outdoorsmen across the country. This podcast is supported by Mark's Outdoors. If you're from around Birmingham, you know of a, a staple in the hunting community here, and that would be Mark's Outdoors. They've been in business in the same location for over 40 years, family owned and operated, and they have a reputation for being one of the best bow shops in the southeast. As we inch closer and closer to deer season, if you haven't already, it's time to dust off that bow and make sure that she's ready to roll for this hunting season. Go stop by Mark's Outdoors and check out their archery counter with Mark and Robbie, two guys I've known for years, excellent bow techs. They've worked on my bow since I started bow hunting. They got all the knowledge and accessories that you need to get ready to rock for this bow season. While you're in there, also make sure you check out their gun counter. They got a ton of nice rifles for everything from AR platforms to nice deer rifles and a bunch of nice shotguns as well. They also have one of the best knife selections in Alabama. I mean, really nice stuff. All kinds of custom knives in there and their ammo selection is just unbeatable as well. We're thrilled to have Mark's Outdoors on board and we thank them for supporting the podcast. Now we're going to ask you guys to go support them. So when you set up these uh, quadrants, these little bars, as you call them, yep. uh, do you set those up according to different wind directions or is it just however it plays out is however it That's plays great out? Question. Great question. It's however it plays out, but okay. One of the things I do when I develop these properties, I do use, I came up with this crazy name called the X factor layout. Okay. What does that mean? Well, if you put an X 
and I'm going to draw, I could draw that out for you real quick, but if you draw an X, at the end of each leg, you put something that makes the deer go to it. Food plot, bedding area, bedding area, food plot. In the center of that X, it can be elongated, it can be angled sideways a little bit, depends upon your property. The center of your X is set up for where your barrier is, where you've got a barrier or elevation or a pond to blow over, where you can set your primary scrape up in the corridor where all those X lines cross. So when I'm developing a piece of property, I do that in each, each section. It depends upon where the barrier is, what the wind ends up being. But that's why I have seven primary scrape setups, but I can hunt any winds with them. I've got, I've got at least one for every wind. And some of them have more than one. Some of them have three or four primary wind directions that you can, you can use. Just while we're talking about the barriers, because we're about to go through, like, again, the steps of how you're going about picking these locations, entrance yes. and exit routes, the whole nine yards. But you talked about barriers and having a barrier is really important for you. How does the wind rule in the barrier barrier play a factor to location of that primary scrape in that perfect spot where you can get in right. clean and, again, you can hunt it? So um, let's say you have a marsh, right, that's maybe 100 yards across. Right? And it comes to a point in that marsh is really mucky and the deer don't cross it because it's just too deep of mud. Right. Well, the deer with the wind roll, they want to quarter into the wind. I look at it. They want to go into the wind to scent check it, whether quartering or however they're going, they're going into the wind. So what that means is you're going to blow right down that marsh. They can still follow the edge of the marsh and they absolutely will do that and come into your scrape setup and it'll work that way for the wind for you. Mm -hmm. So a barrier can be an open field, it can be a fence row, a tall fence, it can be a pond, it can be a, even a river uh, can be used depending upon the layout of the river. Um, but elevation advantage is a, is a big thing for me. So that setup I told you I couldn't hunt, mm -hmm. I'm up on a 30 foot bank. I mean the dimensions of putting these primary scrapes in is really interesting because I've taken it to a different level this year. I've now set up a spot uh that spot i talked about that I didn't hunt last year i've now got a primary scrape set up in the bottoms that i can shoot to because i'm on the edge and the top flats so i got two primary scrapes i can can watch and they're in different quadrant setups because mm. the river is a divider for my quadrants as i set them up that's awesome i was going to ask how close could you put those together and as long as i guess you have a barrier then you could actually put them fairly close to each other well, okay, that's a great question. So how, when I say I have a setup, that could have 10 brackets with 20 branches in it, right? A setup to me is within vision of my stand. So that zone is like a scrape zone. It's not really a scrape line. So, they don't, so those, those two primary scrapes are probably about 70 yards apart, but they're in the same general area. So I count that as one setup. So let's, I want to kind of start working through this. Um, Greg, can you start working through when you're looking at a property? Okay. And let's look at this yep. from, again, a private land perspective. And then also we can kind of think about this as well for the public land guys out there. What's going through your head of, again, location to place a primary scrape? Kind of walk us through what goes through your yep. head in that X factor. Exactly. So um, I did a property here, uh, 60 acres just recently, right near me here. And it was a flat piece of property and they were having horrible success. Lots of deer, lots of deer. Park effect woods, so not a lot of cover per se, some cover, not a lot of cover, but basically when you go in, what, what I see a lot of people do is, and I understand why, 
they come in, they got a nice oak tree that's perfect. There's all kinds of deer signs, there's some rubs. So they put a stand up in the middle of a flat woods. They will get busted every time they hunt, right? Because the deer are, you don't know where the deer are gonna be and they're gonna be moving all around, right? Um, so so what, I, what did I do there? So I ended up putting two bracket primary setups on that property. One was along a marsh where they blow out across the marsh just like I described it. And they've already got a lot of camera photos of bucks coming into them. Um, you know, so, so, so one of the things I talked to them about is you've got to do some clear cuts. Um, there's a lot of people um, out here out there to do hinge cutting. I've done a little bit of hinge cut cutting. Personally, I'm not in favor of a lot of hinge cutting. There's some dangers to it. It's a lot of maintenance to it. It keeps falling down. Nature pulls it down. It does create cover. I'd rather go in and do targeted three to four acre clear cuts, get great browse for the deer, great cover, and, and give you more hard edge. Because hard edge is really important if you're trying to set these brackets up as well, because you got to know how they're going to be traveling. Let me give you an example. Let's say you did a, you had a thick area and you had 10 runways coming through it, right? 10 runways. Which one do you put the primary scrape on? You put it on the one where you have the best wind advantage because they will come to it. Once they start hitting it, there's so much uh, surface area on the leaves in the fall because there's so many branches and they're all perfectly placed. In nature, licking branches are not perfectly placed. Branches tend to grow up on the ends. Have you ever noticed that? Because they're growing towards the sun. When I set a licking branch, I turn it over. Well, why would you do that? Because now it's down in their face, right? So, so those are the kind of attributes that are important when you're, when you're setting those up. So you set it up on the branch, it gives you the best, where well, you got the best tree. There's only one tree, that's where it's gonna go because you know the deer will come to it. And that's been even hard for me to get used to, to believe that they're gonna come. So what's your perfect tree up there? I know mine down here is a beech tree. They're always at the perfect height. They're always uh -huh. at the perfect length out from the tree. And that, I mean, they just multiple well, limbs all the way around it. And uh -huh. that's usually like where you find your primary scrapes is because I guess they're to that point again, just like you mentioned at the, at the, at the open of the podcast, they have a bunch of different options for licking branches. You yes, know? they do. Um, I'll answer your question about the tree first, then I'll maybe get into the branches a little bit. I love white pines. I have tons of white pines up here in Michigan. You know, white pines get big. They have a lot of branches, and it's and there's a lot of good cover to hide yourself in. If you talk to Bill, if you put a stand anywhere, and I agree with this fully, you got to oak it in. We call it oaking it in. If you walk through the woods and you see your stand and you can see it, so can that big buck right? So you got to oak it in. What does that mean? You get some zip ties and you cut some oak branches and you zip tie them around on your stand so that you got some camouflage. It, it'll make, if anybody's listening, if they just do that on their stands, it'll make night and day difference on how many deer they see, at least in the age class of the bucks. Okay. Want me to get into branches? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, okay. yeah, let's get into that because this is something that Bill told me the, the specifics on species can play a factor on region and what those bucks are wanting to hit based yes. off where you're located at, which can change, I guess, across the country, really. Yep. Yep. So this is this may be a little bit more detailed than a lot of your listeners want to hear, but it'll all come together at the end. So I did scrape setups with 10 different kinds of branches, maple, oak beech, apple, pear, basswood, and scrub oak. 
Okay. Those were all, and I might've missed one, but anyway, there was 10 of them. I evaluated them for two years, which got the most action, which had the most scrapes underneath it, was the branch chewed on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hands down, basswood is by far the best. Hands down. And I kind of knew that going in because there's hunters in Michigan and consultants in Michigan that said basswood's a good licking branch tree. It is. If you have licking branch trees on your property, you should be setting them up for scrapes because they work amazing. So why the heck is that? And that bothered because I'm an engineer, so I had to study it. So I got looking into, oh, why the heck is basswood a preferred branch? Well, there's this uh, hardness scale around the world for tree hardness. They shoot a ball bearing into the tree, and then however much force it takes to go halfway in, that determines how hard it is. There's 143 tree species generically in the world. Basswood's number four softest. Okay, that's interesting. That's definitely way on the end of the scale. So it's a very soft wood. Well, why is that good? Well, because a deer can chew it, hmm. right? So then I was talking to a farmer friend of mine and he said, well, do you know they make beehives out of that? I said, okay, well, why is that? He said, I have no idea. I said, do you know any beehive friends? He says, I do, I've got a friend that has beehives. So I called the guy and talked to him and I first asked him, well, how many beehives do you have? So I wanted to have you know, somebody that really knew what they were talking about. He had 2000 beehives. I said, okay, you're, you're good. <laughs> Well, he said there's no odor with basswood. He said bees prefer to have hives with no odor so they can find their way back, right? So how does that go to deer? Well, deer want to leave scent. And it gets into the, to the I was going to talk about the glands, um, the vomeronasal gland, which is a gland in deer's mouth. I don't know if anybody's heard about that, but it's a way of tasting smells somehow it's connected into their old olfactory system and they can smell through taste. So that's why they chew the branches. So they don't want to have any odor on that basswood. That's why they like it so much. They can taste the other deer that have been there. I mean, that's the only logic I've gotten at. So that's how I got the basswood. Okay. The second best one was a scrub oak, which is a gnarly oak. It's a very soft wood oak and that's very, very effective as well. So, that's how we got. So basswood branch and basswoods all across the Midwest. Um, I think Oklahoma, I think Missouri, I think a lot of the southern and western states have some basswood as well, American basswood. Uh, but it's a great, great tree for licking branches. But you can use others. The other thing, I don't want people to think you can't have a primary scrape if you don't have basswood. That's not what I'm saying. If you have it, use basswood. If you don't, use scrub oak. If you don't use the tree, you know in your woods what trees they use, right? So if you walk to your property and everywhere you go, it's this oak and there's a lot of different kinds of oaks. It's only, this is the primary oak. Then that's the one you use. Which goes back to Michael, what you were saying about beech trees. And that would be interesting to see where the beech tree lies. We have a lot of beech trees down here, at least in the region of the state, the country that we're in, um, or at least specific regions of say Alabama have more beech trees than others. And pretty much in areas where they're a limiting factor, you always find, you know, large, we would call community scrapes or like a primary scrape on those trees. And I wonder yep. if it's not only because of the, the height of those branches, like what Michael's talking about, they have lower branches, they go out very far, they're at the perfect height for a deer to get to. Yep. But also, I wonder if the softness is a factor too. That's interesting. Yeah. That would be super well, interesting. I mean, I had a hundred thoughts just listening to that little section, like, because, I mean, just like rubs, like the rubs down here are usually always on cedar or um, or pine. And yep. I always thought it was because of the the sap or oil or whatever in there 
was maybe holding some scent, but this being explained is kind of almost backwards in that respect as far as like them actually licking on it. So that got me kind of thinking, you know, what is it about the the pine or the cedar that that they like to rub? I guess their it, their antlers. It, you know, forehead I don't on. know the answer to that question, but I think it's more visual. That would be my comment. Yeah. Because you walk up to a white pine and you can see it's been rubbed. You can see it a long time away. In the same thing on a beach. I mean, you know, what or cedars in particular, cedars. I mean, as well. Yeah. Um, so they see it maybe when they're younger, like you know visually and it, i guess it maybe just sticks with them because when I mean, you think like i mean if you go out in the woods especially around here if you see a cedar you better walk up to it because there's a nine times that <laughs> there's gonna be a rub, on, be a it. rub yep. on it so yep, i agree so the so the branches so that, that's something that's interesting so Again, it's it's important no matter where you're listening from you know, to the listeners out there trying talking to you guys uh, and, and gals um, is to figure out what species of tree do you consistently find, especially some of these community scrapes on. Not just like the, I mean, you can find a like you said a secondary scrape anywhere, anywhere. Um, yeah. So so you don't don't pay attention to those, but these primary scrapes or these community scrapes, which some parts of the country I've heard people like say that they don't think they've ever found one before for whatever reason. They're just harder to find. And I know other guys that talk about them all the time. Like, oh, man, I find primary yeah. scrapes or community scrapes quite often while scouting. Well, let me talk about that for a minute if I could. So so in nature, some properties have great uh, setups for do, for bucks to make scrapes. Others don't. If there's heavy vegetation on the ground, they're not going to scrape. They, they, they got to have bare ground or close to it. They'll try, right? So, and is the break, so, so that's probably the biggest issue is if you've got just thick cover everywhere and there's no bare ground anywhere, there's no openings anywhere, where are they going to do it? It depends. If you go into any open wood park effect forest, what, the, what I mean by park effect is you can see 100 yards across it, right? I call those deer deserts. The only good that those are for deer is if there's oaks and you're dropping acorns, so that, you know, or bitter nuts or something. So they got something to eat for that short period of time. Um, but any overhanging branch bushes in park effect woods will always have scrapes under them as well. And they're usually traveling at night through there going to food sources. Do you think that's the, the same reason why the, a lot of the logging roads have, you know, you'll have scrape lines on there just because it's bare? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly right. It's a hard edge. And, and if you want, I can get into the setup now if you want. Yeah, let's do it. I was going to say that's what I was going to try to bring us back to is X-Factor location, picking that primary scrape, and again, that setup. So basically, um, I do my setups on T-posts. Go and run tractor supply, buy yourself a seven-foot T-post. It has to at least be seven-foot because you, by the time the branch curves down, you want it to be at the end of that branch to be a five-foot, six inches. Okay. So I set these up in March, and I typically do at least – at least uh, two, if not four, brackets at each spot. That means two branches per T-post, right? Two, four, six, eight. Now, you set those up, uh, two on each side, and it has to be perpendicular to your stand, okay? So if you drew a line from your stand and you had a T at the end, it'd be the perpendicular line. They'd be on each side. Well, why do you want that? So when the buck comes in, he's broadside. Otherwise, you don't know what direction he's going to come in. So you want to set it up that way. It's pretty straightforward to do that. Now, if I'm going to, so let's say I went into a thicket, 
and I found some good runs in this thicket and there was a nice white pine over here and I had a barrier that way. I had a wetland or a bog or something and I wanted to do a setup there, but there was no openings. I make the opening. Okay. Needs to be 15 yards circle. So you want to keep a hard edge. So you take everything out on the interior of that circle. So now you got bare ground. It takes work to do that, but you only got to do it once. Right. Now you got your opening and then you put your T posts on each side and then you put your brackets on top and mount your branches. Okay. So the hard edge is really important. You can't have two foot tall weeds in the opening. You're trying to create a visual. You want them to walk through that opening wall, that hard edge wall, and see, whoa, look at those beautiful licking branches. That's what you're trying to create, okay? So everything has to be either cut. Either you spray it with Roundup, or you get on your hands and knees and cut all the little trees that are growing that are two foot tall, just snip them off the ground level, and then spray with Roundup. Mount your branches. You need to have them at least 10 feet apart so you can have two bucks on one on each side hitting those branches at the same time without being against each other. So you want to give yourself a little bit of space. You put your T-posts right in the edge. So they're really not in the circle per se, but they're on the edge. And then the last thing you do is you spray a circle where a scrape would be with Roundup and you kill the vegetation if you need to. You don't always need to. Um, and then the deer will start coming. So the first deer that comes in will hit the branches. I've had deer come in the next night. That client I told you about that I did, he, uh, he had deer pictures the next day coming into the branches because it's visual. They see it and they got to go up. Deer, I didn't get into this, but deer love to communicate. And what these... Um, setups end up becoming is is, is a uh, a destination checkpoint for them for the bucks and what's what's magical about them is they come in in daylight and i've thought a lot about this why do the big bucks come in in daylight why do they do that because they're in cover they're not out on the food plot if you put one out on the food plot yeah you're going to get night pictures all day long right but to get a mature buck in pressured country to come out into the opening and expose himself you know, I've got, you know, pressured deer on the brain. So I think about this all the time. So, but, you know, it, it can be done. You can kill a big buck off a of food pot. Absolutely. It happens all the time, right? But not for most of us. <laughs> not does, for most of us. Does elevation matter when you're setting these up? Uh, it just, if we want to talk about location, we can do that in a minute. Let me finish the setup. So basically, you got a hard edge. The branches need to be at least five to six feet long. So when you go cut the branches, they got to be five to six feet long. So they come out from the edge. You got to have some depth to that branch. It's really amazing to watch. The deer like to get under the branch. They might even stand with their butt to the post. They just up in the branch from any direction. They want to get under it. So that's really important. So you walk into an opening. There's nothing on the ground. You can have vegetation, but it's got to be short. And you got bare ground where the scrape, where the buck's feet would be when he's got his face in the branch. That's where you got to have bare ground. You ought to spray a circle around up there. So your setup's completed. Once you've done that, now I don't use any scents. Uh, Bill will sometime, other people will. Scents work, but I stay away from it. I let the deer do it all themselves to the point where I have, I could send you another video where I've got deer bedded in the setup a lot. Why is that? Because there's so much deer scent there. It's, it's just like the, uh, um, calming scent you can get right that's out there that's exactly what that does 
that calming scent calms the deer down because it's deer scent. Just plain old smells like deer. So they come into it and they smell that and they bed right in it because they, they think it's safe because if there's a lot of deer scent there, they think it's a safe, safe area. So you know they're working well for you when you have deer bedding, bucks included. I've had nice shooter bucks bed right down in the scrape setup. Deer season is almost here. So if you haven't went and checked out Hasmore Outdoor Products, I don't know what you're doing. Hasmore is the maker of the silent seat, which is an awesome little accessory that will replace the seat on your climber to make you more lightweight, mobile, and quiet. But that's not all they make. They've also got a whole bunch of other stuff for your tree stand to help you get ready for the season, whether it be a bow holder, stabilizer straps, or a tree stand packing system, which I know you climber guys are going to want. We'll go to Hasmore and check out what they got. Let's show them some support going into this deer season, guys. So head over to hasmore.net and use the promo code SO15 for 15% off. Cruiser Saddles is the newest addition to companies supporting this podcast. Cruiser is the maker of saddles and saddle hunting gear. Uh, me and Jacob actually met Chad, the owner, at our Bozenbrews event in March of 2020. We were demoing a lot of different saddles there from a lot of different companies, and he showed up with his products, which were brand new at the time, and everybody there was extremely impressed with him, including me and Jacob. We ended up getting some of his saddles for this past hunting season, used them all year from, basically, we started hunting in August and hunted until February. No complaints, really liked them, the durability was there, the comfort was there, the wearability was there, you know, walking in and out to the stand, so we are very impressed. You can go back to some of the episodes from last year and actually hear us you know live through the season talking about these things we talked about them a lot in the podcast from last year's season just really impressed and we think you would like them too so go to their website and check them out we ran the xc orders ship the same day or next day unless otherwise indicated and you get free shipping on orders over 300 dollars we really appreciate cruiser for supporting this show you guys go show them some support as well now before we get to yeah. elevation mike because that's a good question oh, yeah. I've, got, I've got two two things about this Number one, Bill had sent me some photos of some of the stuff that you have done in these thickets. Yeah, I'm talking thick guys. Like when I'm talking, like we'll probably post some of these photos. I mean, it looks to me the way I would describe it to Southerner is like you're doing these setups in like a privet thicket, privet hedge for like Southerners. You kind of know what I'm talking about. I mean, just it's like a wall of vegetation. And there's just trails coming into it or runs coming into it, and that buck's hitting it in, in midday uh, or in the daylight. And it was yep. interesting when I saw those photos because I'm like, I was thinking before even talking to you and you even saying this, that would make the most sense for a setup is inside that cover because he'll come out and check it, feel more comfortable moving in that area, especially during high pressure times or if you're in a state with a lot of pressure, which pretty much majority of our listeners are, that's going to be a lot more you know significant than putting it on a wide open edge where it's a hard edge, say like on the edge of like a food plot or edge of uh, an ag field or edge of like a wide open river bottom or, uh, you know, park. Uh, what, what, what was the term you used for the park woods? Park effect. Park effect. Park effect. It's, woods. Like, it's just a beautiful, it's beautiful woods. I mean, I hate, I hate to do clear cuts and cut park effect woods because they're beautiful. <laughs> yep. Right. They're beautiful to look at, but they don't offer a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, habitat for, for wildlife. Um, but Again, it makes more sense to put that inside that cover. And I'm thinking more so here as like a Southerner, you know, we live in an area of the country that our number one, you could say, uh, resource when it comes to agriculture is timber, okay? Every place that we hunt, public land and even my private farm, everything is rotated around logging, okay? It's all pines, uh, and we have both longleaf pines and uh, loblolly pines down here in the southeast. And when they cut it, it's awesome habitat for the first six years, and then it kind of fades out, and then you got to find the next cutover, and you got to kind of keep on hopping and find where those deer are at. But putting yep. that primary scrape inside the edge of that now opens up things to do at our family farm that I've never even thought about before because it's at the perfect age right now to do this. And that mm -hmm. just, it, that, I don't know, it kind of gets me excited thinking about it. 
So keep in mind, it doesn't have to be impenetrable. It just has to have good security cover around. It can have little openings all around in it, as long as there's good cover, right? It, you know, so it, but it can be pretty thick as well. One, one other thing I want to kind of give the listeners a visual, uh, if they picked up on it, they may have or they may not have, is when you're talking about your setup, if, I guess if people look at it and they're looking at a clock, if you're staying, if you're at that six o'clock position, you're staying, and that yep. opening is like a circle, like a clock, you're having a T post at the three o'clock and the nine o'clock position with exactly. overhanging branches. Two of them separated enough on each side that the branches aren't touching. Yep. Right. Yep. Exactly. Perfect. Yep. Excellent. Mm -hmm. I just want to kind of get that visual. Um, but Michael, you want to kind of maybe so your elevator question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I was just curious, um, you know, whether or not elevation played any part in the, where these it, locations explain are. Explain to me by elevation. You're talking about high ridges. You're talking yeah, about high ridges versus down in the bottoms. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump back and I'm going to come back to it. I never talked about the heights of the branch. So when you set your branches on those four T posts with, with the bracket tops, you want to have the majority of your branches at five foot, six inches, but you want to have some at five foot and some at four foot five, four foot six. So that the fawns, the one and a half year old bucks, the smaller does, the big does, everybody gets a branch when they come in. That's really important. Um, I think the answer to that is I would have to understand the property where are the deer during the day, right? If they're up in the high grounds during the day, I would be doing a bracket set up there and I'd be getting in there before daylight, before they get up there. Yes. In the bottoms, you just have to have a wind safe setup. Whenever I hunt bottoms, I've got a bottom setup I have. It's on a river bend. It's a 90 degree turn that's straight both directions, 90 degrees. I sit there and I blow right across the creek, but down it. That's the only, a southwest wind is the only wind I'll hunt it. And the deer come around that corner all the time. And I've got a bracket set in open woods. Okay. So you can set them up in open woods in a travel corridor. That's in the bottoms. But you have to think think through what's the wind going to do. And, you know, so in the morning, most of the deer are out in the big farm fields, ag fields to the north about a half mile. So I get in there an hour before daylight and I won't see a deer till, you know, if it gets light at 7, I won't see a deer till 8.30. Right. So, so you can, you can, you put them where you have to think about when you want, when do you want to hunt it and where are the deer going to be? If the deer are in there, they're going to hit it for sure. So some setups you're putting up in more closer to, I'd say that bedding cover and then others you'll put out in more of a travel corridor. So you really have to kind of know the setup in the area of what it's being used for by the deer. Yep. So this spot I just described is an X factor setup. I did two four-acre loggings to make two bedding areas. I put in an acre and a quarter alfalfa plot, and I put a quarter acre of clover in. So I got four things that are drawn through around that bend. They can cross the creek, but there's a big high bank there. So right on that bend, there's high banks, you know. So even if they drop down off of that, they're not busting me because they're coming down and, go, and I'm going right. By the time they get down, they've crossed. I haven't been getting busted in there. We'll see. Probably this year I'll get busted. <laughs> That's interesting. So, yeah, so kind of get back to Michael's question. It really just bases off where the deer are at. If the deer is up high during the day. That's kind of that bedding location where they're spending time. You're going to have a setup down there. Or in some situations where they're down low, you just have to have a money set with a good wind. So let me just add this. So let's say, so where don't you want to put a bracket set up? Well, it's like, it's like if you were going to put in a sporting goods store that sold all the best crossbows in the country or longbows or whatever, you wouldn't put it at a 
five miles out of town at the end of a dead end road where there's no traffic, no gas stations, no party stores, nothing, right? Nobody ever go to it, right? So you always pick the best location where there's a lot of action. So that's the first thing. If there's not a lot of deer runways or movement through that zone, then I wouldn't put it there. So going from bedding to food plots is always great. Uh, between bedding areas is good. Um, travel corridors between uh, sections, let's say they're going from this section of, of property to this section. Um, you know, any, any place there's good movement, um, but I really like to put them in bedding more and more and more. I'm finding that really effective. If I can get in there before the deer, I got to stay all day, which is hard for me because I get really restless <laughs> at my age. But So when do these deer really hammer these scrapes? Okay. All right. That's a great question. So there is no buck in a bottle, right? We all want that. Man, if I could just get that buck in the bottle so every year I could just walk out there and take out the big guy, right? It doesn't work that way. Um, the best time to hunt is not, hunt the brackets is not necessarily during the rut, right? Because what are they doing? They're chasing does, right? Now, if he happened to have picked up that doe on your bracket set, primary scrape setup, and he gets done with her, where's he going to go? He's going to come right back to it. So when I say that, there's that thought as well. But typically the best, you know, um, Bill and I and Bill's calendar is really around the dark period. When's the new moon? That is going to be most of the breeding is going to occur around that new moon. And we see it on our game cameras all the time. Uh, quick story. Two years, three years ago, uh, the dark day, the new moon in September, I had no good bucks on camera. I got nine on camera in two days. One was a big 10 point, scored 150. I went to Kentucky a month later. I'm in Kentucky hunting, hunting lousy down there. I'm not seeing anything. And I'm knowing that that buck was there previously on this location that I wanted to hunt and the wind was right. I drove, I got up that morning. I didn't hunt that day. I drove all the way back to Michigan, got on stand at 610. I killed him at 640 on the same setup. 29 days later, because it's a 28 day cycle. So you're gonna, they're most effective the day, the dark day or two or three days before the dark day. And it changes every month, right? Because it's a sh shorter than our calendar months. Um, but that's when most of the action is. That doesn't mean you can't kill them over at any time because I do get random pictures of good bucks coming in. They're just out and about and they decide to go in there and check it, but they all seem to hit them four, three, two days, one day before the new moon. That's what I'm seeing on all my setups. And that was a question I was going to ask is how does, um, you know, the moon lunar phase, all that kind of stuff play a factor since you run so many trail cameras, it's kind of cool. It's almost like you've done your own little study here. Um, when it comes to action for what you're personally seeing on your property, again, this could potentially change a little bit across the country, but what you're personally seeing you know, those days, you know, approaching the new moon, you know, two, three, four days you talked about are going to be like primary times to really be hunting those scrapes uh, because that's when you're most likely going to have those bucks coming through there. Um, so that's interesting. That, that's that's really, really interesting that I find. Uh, yeah. It's something that you picked up on. Yeah, another really good day is the first quarter moon, two days before in the day before the first quarter moon. The primary movement time on the moon calendar or on the moon time is just a half hour to an hour before dark. So you've so that buck has finished running the dark period in October and then November. He's tired, right? 
you'll see it die down for a few days then. Where do they all go? They're all resting. And then he gets on his feet and he hammers it. So that, that first quarter moon is really, really critical. That's all highlighted on the calendar as well. Yeah. Michael, now, now listen, I want, I want Michael to say something. So, Michael, back in the day, I remember hearing this from you from like two years ago. You're like, man, there's something to the, like, you get like a movement activity and it's like for like, it was almost like a week or two, you don't see anything and then they're back in there. Like, talk yes, about sir. that and we'll get Bill's, or get uh, Greg's kind of take on everything. Yeah. Uh, so, the first year that I put uh, cameras out over a scrape, uh, I had them come in on October 18th, I think it was. Um, this is about three years ago and they just like, it was, I, I, I saw a rub there before, uh, had a couple of does come through and overnight it's like somebody released the floodgates of bucks and they all came in to this one spot, worked it for probably, there was really, like you said, about two days where they really just visited a lot and then you'd get a buck coming through like every other day kind of coming mm-hmm. through there yep. and that would last yep. for about a week i would yep. say seven seven to ten days and then it was like there was 10 to 14 day period where you didn't see anything visiting that yep. and then all of a sudden again it's just like they came in again yep and, and it, you know so, so it, some people don't believe in the moon impact we do at Pressure Deer Pro. We see it out every day on our on our on our game cameras, and the successes our clients have had. Um, I believe in it. I mean, I'm I'm going to hunt. Uh, our season opens up in three days, two days, two days, two days. Yeah, I'm not going to hunt until about the fourth of October. Dark day is the sixth. Yeah, I'm only going to hunt evenings because I don't want to screw up November <laughs> by trying to get into the stand. I might sneak out one morning. I don't know. So one other thing that I really like about the whole, well, not just a no thing in general, but just a topic that I find very interesting is using these primary scrapes to bring the deer, bring those bucks to where you want to ambush them. It's setting yep. up that ambush. I don't know if a lot of people understand that you're setting, you're not just putting these randomly through the woods. It's getting back to like, you're having that perfect tree and you're also the entrance and exit route is also planned out ahead of time as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I don't do any primary scrape set up until I know what tree I could use, how I get in and out of the stand, and what's the deer movement. And do I have a good blowover at this location? If I don't, I don't set it up there, right? So you're trying to put yourself at the absolute maximum advantage. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a good scent program, right? You have to because winds swirl. I've had cases where I had, uh, I had, I think it was eight doe and a three-year-old eight point and a spike all within 20 yards of me. And I was just loving it because the wind was perfect for me and it swirled, but they didn't spook. And I asked them, why didn't they spook? I know they smelled me because they got nervous because my scent program fooled them. It made them think I was further away than I was. So you should really, really, I want to stress that is have a decent scent program because it can make a difference for you. I was actually just talking to another guest, uh, a past guest, about that exact same topic. Uh, who's a gentleman who's just all about trying to do every little thing to give him that advantage, and that's what he said is like, if I can fool their nose, like you can't truly eliminate all human scent unless you're in a bio suit. It is completely airtight, but 
trying to eliminate it to an aspect, and this is a you know controversial topic because some people like just play the win. Some people are like, you know, I get certain things that work for me and everything else, and, and different products that might be on the market or maybe something that they do themselves. But just fool that deer to make them think that hey, instead of being at thirty yards, that smell is coming from three hundred yards, and I'm inside yes. of a thicket. So I, I'm like, I smell them, but you know, I'm just going to yep. kind of keep doing my thing and you know pay attention. Um, and that's the way he described it to me the exact same way. And also what he talked about was in the rut when you're, you know, this is a gentleman actually, well, this is Richard Fott, uh, talking about hunting feed trees, uh, who we just had on, uh, this past week's episode, um, talking about, you know, in the rut with a doe being chased by a buck and that buck might be trailing her 60, 80 yards behind and she runs right up past your stand, Well, she's going to get downwind of you or she's going to, she's going to come past you and, and potentially get in your wind, uh, before that buck's even within range. He's like, if I can just fool her enough to draw him past me to get a shot, that it worked perfect. That's all I need. Yep. You know, we don't, we don't only hunt primary scrapes, right? I have my best, all of my best spots are primary scrape setups, in my opinion, because I've had two, three, two out of the last three years, I've shot really good bucks off of them, right? So, and we've had successes, you know, but we still hunt funnels. We still hunt edges. We still hunt other locations that are good where there's good deer movement. Um, I've got a bedding area made of giant miscanthus, silver grass, switch grass, and 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 it's got a cornfield that butts up against it that is phenomenally good. And I don't have any bracket sets in that. I just don't because I don't. Want, I I'm completely hunting transition to the food coming through the cover of the bedding, out of the bedding area, in heavy cover of switch grass and miscanthus grass into the corn. So, well, that brings up a question then. What dictates you saying, I'm going to set on a scrape versus I'm going to sit on a transition area that might not have a, you might not have one of your primary scrapes there, but you're just trying to catch that transitional movement? Um, if I get some camera data that tells me there's a good buck going into this cornfield or into this sugar beet area or, or whatever, I may try to sneak in and hunt the, coming into that food plot. I try not, I really have moved away from hunting food plots because I just haven't, I've been hunting for a lot of years. I've never had great success killing deer off of food plots. I've seen some, you know, I've passed some that were in right at dark daylight in the morning. Uh, four years ago, I had a huge buck come in, but I couldn't tell which buck. I'm so selective when I shoot because I'm trying to manage manage the herd. I knew he was big, but it was I couldn't tell what he was, so I had to pass. That's the only success I had. I would call it a success because I could have shot him. But that particular food plot was divided with uh, giant miscanthus silvergrass, like an X or a plus sign. And in the center of that is a, a triple bracket. So I do have also do triple brackets in food plots, but the food plot can't just be an open food plot with a licking branch out in the middle. You gotta have some dividers so they feel like they're secure and they've gotta go through it to, to find out what's in it. So that's the layout of a food plot that, you know, um, that's important if you're gonna try to kill them off food plot. The thing about the primary script that I find interesting is just, how effective it can be put in the right spot and not overlooking the small details. Because when I mean overlooking small details, probably the detail I think that a lot of people overlook, myself included, I'm talking from personal experiences, is just that entrance and exit route. And and again, how you might find the most dynamite spot, but if you can't get in there without them, them hearing or seeing you or smelling you, then there, you, it's not a good spot. It's not worth hunting. You can't hunt there, uh, at least not successfully, unless you get extremely lucky somehow. Um, and I think that's something that also, I'm going to ask you about this, how does weather fronts play a factor as well with what you're doing? I mean, will you sometimes go outside of, you know, the dark periods and stuff to focus on an area because you have a massive uh, storm front pushing through? Or how does, again, storm fronts make a factor or play a factor for you when it sure. comes to activity on scrapes? 
so I'm like anybody else. I love to deer hunt. I mean, I got a passion for it. Um, I've got an 11 old, 11 year old daughter to keep me really busy, but I still make time to my deer hunting. Um, so I hunt whenever I can, but I'm not going to screw up a spot that I know is not, it's not, conditions aren't right. As far as weather fronts go, getting in there before the weather front hits or immediately after, once the rain quits, um, can be really good. And Bill will talk about this if he didn't on his podcast is, you know, so it rains, it rains all night and it's morning. The rain's supposed to quit at eight o'clock. You need to be on this, your scrape setup. You know, you need to almost get out there in the rain, knowing that it's going to quit. Because as soon as the rain quits, that buck gets up. He's going to want to freshen that scrape up, but he won't do it until the rain quits. So if you still got a lot of rain dripping off the trees, it might take a while, but he will come in and and, and hit that scrape. So hunting weather fronts can be effective, absolutely. I mean, that's yeah, for sure. Now, is there anything else that you've noticed uh, running trail cameras as long as you have on your property, running primary scrapes that you've learned as other factors or other kind of um, body language of bucks when they come into these scrapes? Yeah. So uh, I do, and I, I got lots of comments on this. So I do an inventory at the end of the season. What do I have left, right? What bucks made it through? So in December, January, and sometimes I'll get lazy and I'll just slap a camera on, right? So last year I had a really nice uh, nine point with uh, an extra time coming off his right side. He was probably 17 inches wide and uh, he come right down the run and I had that camera right there and he saw that camera. He looked at it and took off like a rocket, right? So we probably all have seen that. Um, so camera data, there's two things about camera data that, I, that I've seen. One is, I always put my cameras, I put cameras, I have two cameras on every one of my bracket setups. Two, one that sends me a picture and one that takes good video, right? So how do you put cameras like that out there, not spook the deer? Well, I tend to put them, so if you have your scrape set up and you have a, a six inch tree right 10 feet away, I get on a tree behind that one and off the side a little bit. As soon as you put a tree in front of it or some kind of a little bit of something in front of it, it doesn't, they don't tend to notice them as much. I also sometimes go up higher, go low with them. Bill goes low with his, but um, I've been pretty successful at where I place my cameras. I never put them right on that hard edge, right around that hard edge where the branches are because it's too visible for them. They'll see it or they'll smell it. You put it 10 feet beyond back from that because most cameras will still take pretty good videos from a distance and their trigger points pretty good. Um, the last thing I wanted to say about this, so anybody can get a lot of pictures of three-year-olds on camera in a season i can get 40 50 pictures of the same buck right when they get to be four i might get 10 pictures in a season when they get to be five i used to get zero to two when i start doing these bracket setups like i'm doing now i'm getting 10 15 videos videos of these bucks coming in and just tearing these branches up and, and doing their thing in daylight which is unheard of most of them, the pass I would get would be, you know, because there's so much pressure in Michigan, it's crazy. Um, so, so that I, I guess I've answered your question about cameras there. No, well, that's that's the one thing I was just was curious is like, what have you kind of learned from those cameras in these areas on these primary scrapes for so long? Uh, because I, I feel like you learn a lot about not only like the habits of like when a buck comes in there. You know, is he just hitting that licking branch? Is he checking the ground first? Kind of like how's he coming in and approaching it? And also 
how that interaction is with other deer on those on those locations. So like, like you sent me, you sent me a, a, a photo. I can't remember if it's photo or video, but with the five does and they're all over the all yep. over the licking yep. branches. Bucks will never do that because they get in a fight, right? So they don't ever get that close. If there's if there's a group of bucks that come in, they'll typically be one buck on each bracket. They won't be right next to each other because they keep a distance and there's hierarchy and all that, right? So, so your question is a good one. I mean, there's a lot of body language that you see. Um, um, I mean, last year when I had the seven bucks come into the one set up at once, I mean, in the video, there's two on the brackets here. There's one over there. There's two fighting, right? So it's, it's really, you, you, the thing that it's really, really fun to look at your cameras when you know you're going to have good bucks on them. It really is fun. Let me ask you this, because when you're running uh, cameras on a primary scrape, and the likelihood of so many different deer coming through there and, and them spending time there and possibly seeing a camera getting seen. What is your take on different trail cameras for video? Because I've heard people with different IR uh, trail cameras doing video on not even scrapes, but even travel corridors, that something about the little red light or something happens, and that deer, that buck can really sense that he's out of there. Have you tested things that you've had success with with different cameras? Uh, the biggest thing I did is what I mentioned, is I move them back. I mean, if you put them right on your, if you put them close within five yards, you're going to get, you're going to get hammered. They're going to see them and you're going to actually ruin your setup. Um, so all mine are at least 10 yards from the center, maybe even a little bit further back than that. It depends upon the background as well. If you've got a lot of solid background, a lot of brush and trees, and you got to even set almost up to the edge, they don't tend to see them. It, I analyze every camera setup I do. When I get done, I stand back and study and say, okay, what can I do different? Some of them I'll even leave branches against the tree to kind of camouflage it a little bit. I'll do all kinds of stuff. It just depends. I guess you just get an eye for it when you run as many cameras as I do. You know what a good spot is and what a good spot isn't. Well, one thing that you mentioned earlier on that I found was, again, just kind of fascinating because everybody has different takes on it, is the idea of not using any sense and just putting the, the proper setup there that the deer just naturally going to use. I like that. I like that idea a lot. And when – when we ran them last year, when we made all these mock scrapes, I had I just as many deer yep. come to the ones that I just scraped the ground. You just scrape the ground, and, I, well, you said visual, but I think also just that natural scent of the dirt, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, good point. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, that's, that's an excellent point. But that's where I was trying to get at is the thought that – because some guys – you know, we've inter got, interviewed guys in the past, one being uh, Troy Pottinger – episode, I think 175, um, about his mock scrapes. He, he, he lives out in Idaho. He hunts the Rocky Mountains, kills some really big whitetail up there, and he hunts exclusively yep. primary scrapes or what he calls community scrapes. But he's a scent, uh -huh. he's a scent guy, and he likes to implement yep. different scents. What, what? Well, no, go ahead. Okay. I didn't know if he was going to miss that or not. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But, he, but he uses scents, and he has success with it, and he hunts areas with very low deer densities. Um, and one thing that he's mentioned, which I want to bring up with this, is um, – you know, in these low deer density areas, these big mature bucks, and he's killing six, seven, eight-year-old bucks, they have to check these scrapes because there might be in one huge drainage that might be three miles long, there might only be one or two doe groups of just a couple does. 
So he he like lives by that nose to try to find where the does at. Are they in heat or not? And then go and find them. And of course, knowing where they're at. And he has a ton of success. And he also hunts very similar. You know, having some kind of wind advantage that that buck has coming into the scrape. And he loves setting up on his favorite kind of uh, barrier is a uh, like a drop off, uh, whether it's into a, a super steep drainage okay. or bluff. Elevate. And has a ton of success with that. And he talked about that. Now I think about it, he's almost he's pretty much using the wind rule out there because he's having it where that buck has a quartering wind when he's coming in and he's just hunting just off off that wind that the buck can't smell him. It, yeah, almost to a T, y'all are doing like the exact same thing. He's, he's very meticulous too. He's basically, uh, when he finds a, a community scrape somewhere, he will actually scrape like with a shovel or something get the dirt and put it into a baggie and take it and replant it in his mock scrape and he'll also take the licking branches he'll cut a couple of those off and then actually wire those on to like another branch at a different location yeah that's interesting yep yep so uh i did fail to mention one thing so my setups are all done in the spring right the stand is in the lanes are trimmed out, and when when you trim out lanes, you don't take the trees down. You just take some branches, so you got openings for your shot. It's it's really a mistake to take down long lanes and all your trees out. I don't. I don't um, anyway, so I set these up in the spring without leaves. So during the summer, they're just sticks. The does, the young bucks, the one and a half year old bucks, they're still with their mom. They hit them. The fawns hit them all summer. No, nothing older than two and a half come in all summer long. Then I go in and then the end of August and I go cut new branches and I replace them. So once you got this rotation going, once a year you got to put new branches on. And the, in the fall you want to have them with the leaves, so the scent concentration goes up. So you're leaving a lot more volume of scent, and I can't stress that enough that that's one of the reasons why this is so effective because there's so much scent on them. If you have a transient buck that's coming from two or three miles away, and he's coming through your property, and he's downwind of that, and he catches wind of that, he's going to come into it. I had I had a, quite a number of um, I'll call it odd bucks show up that I didn't have on camera all season, and they came right into the setup. So how why why is that? Because they smell them. Whoa 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 guys, hold on now. You've been listening to a lot of our content, getting a lot of free content lately. If you've been listening to the show for quite some time and enjoy the show, one way you can help support us is join our Patreon. Uh, if you join the Patreon account, you get access to all kinds of content, including gps studies giveaways and videos now click the link in the show notes below and join the patreon today all right so you say you're a fan of the southern outdoorsman podcast and you love the show you tell all your buddies you might even leave us a review on itunes but you're not rocking southern outdoorsman merch what's going on now you can fix that today just head on over to our website southernoutdoorsman.com forward slash shop you can check out the new t-shirts new decals and everything else we have on the website or better yet you can click the link in the show notes below and go directly to the website from there. Love to see you in the Southern Outdoorsman merch. Thank you guys for the support. Let's see about odd bucks. Uh, who, who was talking about tr- uh, trespassing bucks? Trespassing bucks. That was uh, was that Troy over the weekend? Really sure. So we had I think I think it was Troy Pottinger, same gentleman I, we were just talking about out in Idaho. Um, he's in northern Idaho talking about you know that, that those transient bucks. He calls them trespasser bucks, and most of the time a big trespasser buck gets shot on on site. But um, but 
that's an that's an interesting point there. Again, just uh, the effectiveness. Can you talk a little bit more about the biology of bucks and, or just deer in general? The different glands, because we talked about the gland in the mouth. They also have the, I know the orbital gland and then also the one on the forehead. And you know how does that play a factor in the different scent profiles that w- will be left on a scrape? Um, that of course you know these bucks kind of use to kind of know who's in the area and what's all happening, other than of course urinating in the scrape. Right. Well, the preorbital gland is their eyes, their tear ducts, right? And there's a waxy substance there that leaves scent. So that's why they stick their face up in there and get their eyes up in there so far into the leaves. And then the forehead gland. So those are the two that leave the scent. Um, and urinating in, in, in the scrape is something that happens a lot. So, uh, I mean, in all deer, and I've mentioned this, all deer want to make leave, leave their scent on the branches. All deer do. I have more does by far come into my scrapes than I do bucks. Even though my buck to doe ratio is two to one, the does are in there every day. Every day, the does are in, are in on, on them, leaving scent and peeing. And I, I find, even right now, I'm finding uh, urine in the scrapes. Yeah, go ahead. So can I ask you a question? Um, you, you just hit on that they're peeing in the scrapes, maybe at different times. But I've noticed it almost seemed like when it, I, this is just a thought that, you know, came to me when I was going through all the data, but my kind of thought process behind this was when they poop in it, it was almost like they were, maybe that was a little bit different. Like, have you seen them do it, do that? Uh, I had a lot of feces in my scrapes, but I've seen it. I think it's just nature call. Okay. <laughs> they're having a nature call when they're in your, happen to be in your scrape area. Yeah. Uh, but you're in, more common thing that happens a lot yeah well i've got a couple of does that have gone through and it seems to be like during that basically right before like the main rut is going to happen and you know i thought maybe like this is their way of saying hey like maybe i'm kind of ready now or something i don't i mean it's far-fetched maybe but i mean i've seen it on camera like them defecating in, yeah in, in, the scrape. in the scrape the does so I don't guess you've seen anything. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, we're sitting here thinking. Well, so again, the whole idea of this scrape is it is a, it is the that is the scrape that primary scrape is social media for the deer. That's how they know what's going on. That's their communication. And what you're trying to do is you're just hard. They're already hardwired for it. The whole idea of this really this whole podcast is putting them in the air that you want them to be in. That they're going to come and check that you have the best opportunity to shoot them from your tree stand location. Now, also, do you ever implement ground blinds in these spots too? Yes, I do. With a perfect licking branch setup. Uh, that's the thing I would add to what you just described. Each of those branches are at the perfect height, the perfect distance, the perfect presentation, and they're the right branch. All that makes a huge difference in the in the effectiveness. So yes, uh, ground blinds. I have I have a ground blind uh, where I also have. Uh, two bracket setups, primary scrape setups, one on the plateau above, one on the river bottoms below. Um, that I hunt inside a, a wooden box blind with windows. It's all camouflaged in with pine branches. Um, so when you walk by it, you really can't see it. If you put a box blind in the woods in Michigan, the bucks will go around it like crazy. All right. So I go on people's properties and every 50 yards, it just seems like there's a box blind, right? Once they start building, they just keep putting them everywhere. But the problem is, 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 is that when a buck gets to be four or five years old, he be, he knows that that means danger. So you got to camouflage him in. So if you're hunting on the ground, and Michael Yates is the guy to talk to with Pressure Deer Pro. He just talked to him about ground, ground blind hunting. 
because he's an expert at it. He, he's got the ghillie suit and everything else. He's had deer two feet away from him. We could reach out and slap him um, when he's been hunting. But the key thing, at least with my experience, is you got to camo in your blinds really well. In your rifle blinds, uh, I've got rifle blinds that are sitting out there in the open, but they're back 200 yards from the, you know, where I'm watching deer. Well, I want to do this. So behind you, so we're we're also yeah. we're do, we're doing a video uh, podcast here. So of course the audio is going to come out on Monday, and the video will come out as soon as Michael gets it edited. So you know, not throw you too much under the bus. It ain't going to be out the same day, probably. Yeah. Our, my first week of hunting is going to be next week, so I'm just letting you all know that ahead of time. <laughs> it might be a couple weeks before the video comes out. Anyways, but uh, with the different segments and everything, you have a diagram here. And I want to talk a little bit about this of, like, different experiences kind of from, you know, running trail cameras to also, you know, going through the whole hunt and actually capitalizing on a buck based off some of these different setups. And I know you got one drawn up behind you. So this this is a setup on my property. And um, it's the story I told you of where I – I got a I had nine bucks on camera in September and I came back from Kentucky and I harvested a buck. This is the layout where I harvested that buck. Okay, so basically this is a creek right here. This is a two track that comes up into a food plot that's split with switchgrass. So it's got a switchgrass divider down it. White pine right here at the end. This is a 30 foot drop off down to the creek bottoms right here. Okay. I don't know if you can see these dotted red lines, dots or not. Those are deer runs into the food plot from multiple directions. This is all thick cover. So I put a bracket set, four brackets, eight branches. Inside that cover, I had to cut that opening. So what did that buck do? Well, first of all, what wind would you hunt this with? I can hunt it with a wind this way because I'm going to get busted. I can't hunt it into the food plot or this direction. So an east wind is the best win because the buck what he did is he came right down here crossed this two track came right along the edge and came right into this he went past it came back and i shot him in the food plot okay i could hear him back here i heard him go through i could see him i couldn't get a shot just the way he came into that bracket set but i knew he was going to come through and come around which he did the jayhook right into this so that was with an east wind What's interesting is I had hunted this plot layout for, I don't know, five years and never seen a, a four or a five-year-old. I had them on camera, but I never saw them. I always walked up this trail right here. Every time I walked up this trail up in the flats, I'd see a few tails. This is bedding area up here and bedding area down here. I'd see a few tails. Well, so that day I shot him, I said, I'm not going to go in that way. I actually dropped down crossed the creek, went up this steep bank, and got straight in here, and I killed him that way. So getting back to your question earlier, your entrance and access is really, really important. There's a lesson that I learned that this is an easier walk, got a nice two-track trail to go up, versus climbing on my hands and knees up this bank, right, to get into the stand. But that ended up resulting in me killing that deer because he probably would have smelled where I walked. And kind of give the idea for the audio listeners out there, uh, you know, definitely watching this video is going to be, you know, really key. But really the, the setup is is just you're right off a bend on the actual, on this major creek system. And we're on the eastern side of the creek with a very steep bank just east of the creek. Uh, I'd say, what, 30, 40 yards, you have a food plot where it starts. And between the food plot and the creek bank is very, very thick cover. And that's actually where the um, primary scrape is set up. And the buck came yep. from the north 
kind of working his way down the creek uh, and kind of worked his way uh, in with an easterly wind. So coming left to right and uh, and came in there with a full wind advantage and kind of J-hooked around into the greenfield and then you shot him there. So it, it's a really interesting setup and makes a lot of sense as well about how he was getting into it versus how you were accessing it originally coming from the two-track and the two-track comes from the western side. So you actually crossed the creek and – Pretty much you're walking right past where that buck would be cruising through and also where you're saying a lot of other deer are bedded. Um, so you're kind of doing a lot of damage, it seems like, coming from that direction versus just coming straight up that very steep creek bank. So the key is is that that deer, that buck, could come in to the edge, scent check his way up through here. In the meantime, I'm in this tree and I'm blowing right off the drop-off, right? Right close, just missing him. I'd also hunt that with a northeast wind because they can still quarter that wind in. But I don't think I, I wouldn't hunt it with a north wind because I'd get busted from the deer coming from the south. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Very. Yep. And by the way, in that food plot, I see you have a red line going through there. Is that like some switchgrass or something? That, or it is about a, a five-yard divider of switchgrass down the center. And the reason you do that, and there's a lot of information on this out there, is is if a buck comes in one side, he can't see the does on the other side. If he's using his eyes, he's got to go across it. So it's going to give you a chance at him. It forces him to come out and cross the food plot. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Very yep. cool. So let me ask, you know, from the majority of the times when you're hunting these primary scrapes and you have a good setup, mm -hmm. how are you seeing, again, the deer coming into them? Of course, they're coming in. You're saying they're coming in with some kind of wind advantage. Are they normally J-hooking? Are they coming kind of scent-checking those scrapes before they come in? Well, it's really interesting you ask that. The problem is, is in many cases, the cover is, in some of my best setups, the cover is so dense. I mean, you can walk through it, right? But when you're in a tree looking into a cover, that's a lot of cover, you can't see. All of a sudden, they're there. So in many cases, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not as fun and enjoyable to hunt over a scrape setup than it is to hunt a food plot where you see deer, right? So when I've killed off of those, although that night I killed that buck, I saw 17 deer. So I was on a food plot though, so that's probably why. <laughs> but you know, so um, typically they're, they always come in from the downwind side. So that's how I can answer your question. They almost always come in from the downwind side, so they've come in set checking it first. I can't tell whether how far the Jay hooked around or, or not because I can't see him in the cover. A, a question I've got for you when it comes to the uh, primary scrapes is how often, you know, when you have it, especially set up in cover, okay, where Buck's, you know, comfortable coming out to it during daylight, yep. how often are you seeing that Buck check scrapes? I mean, is it something that during that dark period every day he's there? Is it something roughly every 48 hours? I mean, do you see any patterns yep. every Buck totally different? Yep. Um, I can give you a case where – there was a, a a buck that we call the hole in the ear buck. He was he had been shot through the ear, so he had a hole, <laughs> hole in his ear. So he's easy to recognize. He hunted all day uh, in 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 a stand setup like this. He came through four times in the same day. It took him two hours. You know, and he would go out. Let's say he would go come from the north, go to the south. Next thing you know, two hours later, he can be coming from the north again. So he had a cycle that he was going around, right? Um, that's the only time I've really seen that, but that's a buck that, that had a system that he was using and he just did his circuit. And, and so I could have shot him four times. So he was only, he was only four year old. So I didn't shoot him. A neighbor shot him. 
Which is, is okay. <laughs> is there a specific time that you're finding that these are more productive, like time of day? Um, that's a great question. Ooh, yeah, that is a good uh, question. Yeah. Early in the morning, midday-ish, 11 to 1, and after 4 o'clock. There have been very few come in between 1 and 4 in the afternoon. So they could produce all day long, but those are kind of like the highlight of movements. Yep. Yep, you just never know when something's going to come in. I mean, uh, uh, the bit, the, the big hundred and sixty some inch we got last year on my property. Um, I was, I almost killed them one night. Uh, the wind wasn't quite right. I'm so anal about the wind. In each setup, I've got drawn out. These the this is the best wind. This is a secondary wind that can be hunted, and it was a secondary wind. And this guy was such a good buck for Michigan that I said, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go in. And I had him on camera at six o'clock. I could have killed him, <laughs> but we eventually got him. So, so yeah, you never know when they're going to come in. Um, yeah, that's what makes it fun, right? If it was easy, it wouldn't be as much. We wouldn't all be as passionate about. It. Well, great. Let me ask you. Yeah, let me ask you. What are we? Is there anything that we're kind of missing though in this kind of the whole setup and the premise of how you approach, you know, primary scrapes, the location, the setups? I know we talked a lot about that, but is there anything else we're kind of missing the grand scheme of things of kind of you know putting everything together and capitalizing on it? Well, well, I really want to stress something you said earlier. Is the fact is the vantage this way that I'm doing it has is I can put this wherever I want. I can do a setup in 20 minutes if the area is ready, right? I can go get my eight branches and come in with my my power drill and my little package of screws and and my saw and my zip ties, and I can put branches in there and put posts in and everything in 15, 20 minutes. I can do it by myself, but I got bad shoulders, so I like to have help because reaching up kills me. But so that's probably the biggest thing is being able to put and create a primer scrape where you want it, not where it's convenient, but where you want it, where you have the biggest advantage is the key. And by having more than a single branch, trying to have, even if you're just going to pull some branches down, don't do just one, do a group of them, right? Um, because the more branches you have, the more action you're going to get by other bucks. The more other bucks come in, the more comp competition you have, the more action you're going to have in that zone. So that's the other principle of, of what I'm doing is, is I'm trying to maximize the scent so that there's more deer coming in and any deer that wants to come into that that wants to hit a branch he can because there's so many branches um like i said the most i've had is seven good bucks at once come in vertical drop sets or let's say you got trees that are there and the branches are a little bit high right but and they're, and they're not the right tree like white pines we get in michigan we get scrapes underneath white pines but they never chew on the branches because i don't think they want to get that pine tar in their teeth like we don't want it on our hands right um so what you do is you go cut your basswood branches or whatever branches you're going to use and you make sure you have a, a, a Y branch coming off it. You pull that branch down and you go over the top and you zip tight and you have a vertical drop. It's very effective, very effective on the edges of food plots. Like I did a setup um, on my property. Uh, I got a cornfield, a switchgrass, about an acre switchgrass field and a tree line. Uh, and on that tree line, I went in and I brush hogged. I used my, my zero turn mower. I mowed underneath the trees, but they were all the wrong tree type. Then I came in and I zip tied 15 licking branches called vertical drops. Okay, I did that three weeks ago. I went there, I went on vacation, 
and last in this last week I went I checked it I've got 14 scrapes and it wasn't that much work it was fun to do it but you can do that too that's another thing now most of those are going to be secondary scrapes but the whole idea on that setup is there's so much cover cornfield switchgrass the place I mowed in a tree line and I and it's spread out and there's a corner so i've got 15 spots where these bucks are coming and hitting branches any buck coming to that field is probably going to hit a branch even though it's a secondary scrape and i can still kill them oh okay. make- yeah that, that makes really good sense so just for the people that again you know some i listen some listeners get upset with me when i try to ha- rehash something or just like, try to better explain okay. stuff for the listeners but i'm going to do it right yeah. here when you're talking about a, a vertical drop you're talking about you're cutting a branch that say is the basswood in this situation. That's that's kind of the, the, the probably four four foot long or so. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. And then you're finding an overhanging branch that you are then zip tying this branch, hanging it vertically. It's not horizontal. It's vertical, dropping straight down. Vertical to five foot. I put those at five foot, a little bit lower, so they can get their faces in it because it's straight down. Yep. Still mm-hmm. exactly. You still want the leaves and everything on there, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. This, yep. this, this is, I like that too. Now, so what, what's the tactic then when hunting secondary scrapes? Because that, that's something I hear a lot of people talk about hunting. That's what they're hunting. They're hunting secondary scrapes as a scrape line or something. What is the tactic hunting a secondary scrape or a scrape line versus the primary scrapes? The thing about a secondary scrape line or scrapes like that is you don't really know when he's going to come through there or why he's going to come through there, right? Is he coming through there a lot? If you find... Like usually if you find a scrape line like that, you're going to have rubs too, right? And so if you pay attention and you go through there and you see there's four rubs, you come back now with six rubs, you know he's coming through there pretty regular. So I might hunt a secondary scrape line like that. But what I've created at my property there where I've got the 15 branches and I have 14 scrapes now because one didn't get hit, you know, that the food source is right there and there's good cover. I know the bucks are going to move through there every night. I don't know if he's going to come through that quarter every, excuse me, every night. So I would rather hunt that close to the food plot one than maybe a corridor through the woods because he may be doing it at night and you don't know unless you have a camera there, right? So if I had a setup like that, I'd be putting my send me camera, one of those out there and trying to get a picture of when he's coming through. And that's the other, that's the other thing. Uh, Let me talk about camera data. I don't know what Bill covered, but when I look at camera data, if I ever get a good buck coming in, I want to know what time he was there and what was the wind. And I'll document that because I know that if I get the same situation, he may do it again. That's the wind he prefers to come into that setup. You know, so I'll, t- I'll look at that data and say, okay, I'm after this guy. Whenever he shows up anywhere, what's the wind and what time is he coming in? That camera data is very, very important. I care more about that than the picture, really. Once I know he's a good buck, then I don't care anymore i just want to win and what the wind's doing that was a question i was going to ask uh, at some point in this episode so i'm glad you brought it up was how consistent is it when you're finding bucks on trail camera that they're using a similar wind or maybe like a 90 degree pie of that wind uh you know if you're looking at north south east and west he's using like a 90 degree angle to come in there pretty regularly when he's che- when he's checking it it's certain a certain wind yep so that does happen but it's really it's it's the whole adage that you know, mature bucks are like ghosts, right? You don't know when they're going to come through or where they're going to be. So lots of times, I would say more than, I'll bet three quarters of the time, I don't get enough pictures of mature bucks to know that information. 
Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Sometimes you have to use guess. You have to guess if he did this on this date and this was the moon and this is the wind. If you get duplicated conditions, I'd hunt it because you just don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. Kind of like the buck behind you that you gave an example with earlier. Yeah. 28 yep. days later, you or 29 days later, you were back yep. in that same spot. Same spot. And I killed him. Yep. Mm -hmm. So um, this brings up a question because at the time of the year, I'll kind of explain a little bit about our listener group because it'll make even more sense for you. You know, you in the Midwest right now, you know, we're coming into October. Uh, you know, the rut, you know, is looking, you know, a month or so away. Uh, we kind of started November is when we're kind of really rolling into it. But down here in the Southeast, you know, in our example where we're at, you know, in Alabama, you can truly hunt pockets of the rut throughout the state because we have different introductions of deer from different places of the country from late October through the end of season in February. Uh, and some of, some of our listeners have December ruts. Some of our listeners have January ruts and some listeners down in the deep South have, I mean, literally a, a last week of January or first week of February rut. That being said, kind of opening that kind of door here. And it's not just all November ruts for a lot of our listeners. Um, even though we do have guys that live up by you that you do, do listen, is it too late right now to set up some of these primary scrapes for some of these guys? No, no. Um, so here in, in the Midwest, I, I really try to get people to have them set up by September 1st, right? So you, the scent can get out of the area. They can start hitting them. You know, if, if you, so if you set these up in October for the November rut, you've really missed it a little bit because you're, the, the deer need time to find them, start hitting them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're out a couple months from the rut, I would absolutely set these up. Absolutely. And the other thing is that, um, I don't care if your rut's in October, November, December, January, the moon is the same. When is the dark day? When is the movement period going to be? They're going to show up on cameras. When's the breeding going to be? You kind of know, right? The calendar tells you that. Um, so, so yeah. That, that's, that, that's, that was one thing I was really wanting to ask because I know some of the listeners are probably like, well, crap, you know. I'm like, you know, Greg's talking about doing it in the springtime and all this kind of stuff. You know, is it too late to be, you know, to have it, you know, done? So I'm glad you were able to kind of bring that up because I think a lot of people now after hearing this episode, especially some of the private land guys that are either, you know, have their own private farm or they're leasing property or they're part of a hunting club where there's, a, you know, quite a few guys on one property, you know, are now probably thinking like, hey, I'm going to go out and try to implement some of this stuff, which I would personally if I had more private land. And then for me on public land, I'm just trying to think, you know, where could we implement something that people aren't going to mess with? That's what I'm thinking of. And the thing is, is, is don't get disillusioned if you're not successful right because licking branches work anywhere in the country primary scrapes work anywhere in the country the deer if you give them the right setup with the right branch at the right time they cannot walk into an opening and not hit the branches they can't it's just it's wired it's the way they're wired so if it doesn't work then you've done something wrong either it's scented it's too much scent you left or you got predators or there's too much pressure from the neighbor's dog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Pressure and the pressure you put on as a hunter on your property is really, really crucial. I got two guys that, that helped me plant the food plots and all this and that, and they're, they're my partners on the property, I'll say. And after September 1st, if you don't have your shooting lanes cleared out on your rifle spot that you got, you don't get to do it. After September 1st, it's hands off, you can't go in there. The only ways, way we go in there is, is, to, ch is to check game cameras. And that's minimized. So why is that? Because we want to have, when we go in to hunt those setups, we want them to be totally natural. That's why I do it in the spring. I don't want to have any pressure on those deer because there's pressure everywhere else. 
you go offside my property line, there are stands everywhere and there's hunters all the way around, right? And when the deer step off my property, they get nervous. When they're on my property, they wander around in the daytime, right? If, if you wanna make your deer nocturnal, ride your four-wheeler all over the place through your property and you know, walk your dog through the property. I mean, I, I mean, you pay your taxes, you do what you want on your property, but we all love to walk through the woods. I mean, it's a fun time, but it's hands off right now. <laughs> Greg, we're kind of getting to like kind of the latter part of the episode. Uh, is there anything else that you've written down or anything else that you, again, you want to cover for the listeners to kind of even have a better idea of kind of what you do, the process, or any other kind of tips for the listeners? Well, I think if, you, if you're a private landowner and you're going to bring somebody in to help you develop your property, make sure you ask them, okay, how are we going to use this for ambush? Because there's so many people that have had I'll just say they came in and they hinged cut two acres and they put a food plot here. And I says, well, why did you put it here? Uh, because, okay, but why? Why, if the, if you can't hunt this food plot or you don't have a way to hunt the quarter to it, why do it? So whenever you're developing your property, make sure you think about, okay, how is this going to help me be more successful in my deer hunting? That's really, really a crucial question that you got to ask because otherwise you do the wrong things people can develop a great property have bucks run on over the place but they can't kill them and there can be lots of reasons why that is right no scent program um not managing pressure walking in to your stand you know at the wrong time there's all kinds of reasons because the deer have the advantage in reality that's a good point I've, actually now i have two questions and I might have this might be a seven hour podcast. It's an hour, we're at an hour and thirty five right now, but who knows? After I ask a few of these questions, where this goes. Um, one thing is, how does dirt play a factor, or lack there of dirt for scrape location? As I mean, if you're in hill country with a lot of rocks, how does that play a factor for location? It, it does. Um, deer like to throw stuff with the, when when the bucks are making scrapes they like to throw stuff i've watched them do it it's crazy they can throw stuff 20 yards i don't even know how they do it right um a couple things if you get if you get a really really wet fall and you got water in your scrape locations they're not effective we had a really really wet fall two years ago i can't remember when it was but the deer weren't hitting them at all because there was no scent and it was wet they don't want to scrape in water I had standing water in the scrapes. Um, so that's one thing. But um, having dirt that they can paw, if you have rocks in it, if you can't get them out of there so that they got some dirt to dig around in, you can always bring a little, it, it, this, this this starts to get into anal stuff, right? You can bring some dirt in. I mean, if you wanna make a bedding area in a in a marsh, you can do that, right? You just gotta go in there and raise the dirt up. You gotta bring some dirt in and make some little mounds. That can be done. It'd be great, phenomenal bedding but it takes work. So there's lots of crazy ideas like that that you can do even if you don't have the right soil. But is that something that when it comes to soil, um, you know, if, I'm just thinking right now. So uh, a brother of mine um, hunts in the Ozark Mountains in, in uh, northern Arkansas. Uh, he's up in school there and college there. And on a lot of these ridges, I mean, it's the, – the, what we found out, and I talked to some locals, that there's a lot of just rock, limestone rock everywhere on all the ridges. But when you'll get to certain places, whether it's around fields, agriculture, someplace where there's sediment, that's where you're, the scrapes, just that's where they're at. But then you get off that ridge or you get off that little point of where that soil is really congregated, 
and there's like lack of that sign. Like it's or you find the ones or you find the little drainage where there is more soil, and then again a scrape will pop up just because the the lack of quality. So if you ask yourself, what are the parts of a a scrape licking branch setup? Well, there's the licking branch is the main thing, right? Scraping the ground is a place where I, I don't. I guess it's where they leave scent when they urinate, right? So. This, I'm guessing when I say this, my guess is there is scraping that goes on up there. You just can't see it. So you got to pay more attention to the branches. Because what do we see when we walk through the woods and we find a scrape set up with a licking branch? We see the ground, right? I, I don't usually look for a branch. I look for the ground because it's easy to see. So my guess is that they're probably there. They're just not seeing them. Yep. And it's probably more licking branch aspect uh, yes. than anything. <laughs> Because that's, that's still the way that they communicate. Instead, I guess that's a good point. A lot of people think of scrapes as the ground. They don't think of the licking branch. It's like that's like a secondary aspect for most people. They like, they don't think about the licking branch. They think about the scraping of the ground. But it's really flipped. I mean, the the licking branch is yeah. quite a bit more yep. important. It's very important because it's where they leave the scent, and that's how they recognize each other, smell each other. You know, if another buck comes in and hits that scrape, that other buck's looking for him. He doesn't necessarily smell the ground. He could, I suppose. I don't know. I'm not a deer. <laughs> so great. I've got to ask this and not to derail the conversation off, off, uh, you know, primary scrapes and everything that we've talked about so far. Uh, but I'm sure people are asking, I'm just curious, what is your scent regimen in, in the protocol that you use? Um, or again, this is the protocol you do in the fall yep. to kind of be prepared. Yep. So, um, so the first thing I've had these thoughts in my head about this because most of my spots are wind safe right but i still have a regiment so i wash my clothes in a washer that are that has not had any scented soap right then after i wash them i actually soak them in the carbon water with carbon and then dry them on the line and then they go into a scent lock bag i use lavalin for deodorant which bill i think mentioned um, lavalin is what was developed i think during world war ii for for the soldiers that were out for weeks and weeks and weeks without showers. Um, so it's very, very good at controlling scent. Um, so everything gets sprayed down, you know, you know, your uh, binoculars, the strap in your binoculars. I don't know if people realize that strap has a lot of scents on the back of your neck where you sweat, right? So if you aren't spraying that down, even washing those sometimes, that can be a source of scent. Another thing that's a source of scent is your phone. The phones probably stink more than anything. So what I do is I keep mine in a Ziploc when I hunt. I can still use it because it works through the plastic. So so phones are something that people probably overlook as well. Um, boots, I keep them. They never see anything but dirt, and they stay in a bag with leaves. A lot of people do that. Um, but deer still know I've walked through an area. And we at Pressure to Pros have talked about this because it bothers them. How the hell did they know I came through there? And, and, and Michael really has got us this point. It's ground disturbance, right? It's the fact you take a big boot of a man, it's disturbing a lot of ground versus a couple little hoofs off a deer. So they know that something significant has walked through there. Absolutely. I've worked with, uh, and she might be a future guest in the podcast. It's a, a dog handler out of Virginia who does a lot of search and rescue tracking and uh, talks about that a lot with her dog. And her dog actually found me. It was, a cr it was crazy. I, I wish I could have filmed it. Because that dog, I had the wind in my favor, and it followed ground disturbance directly to me. Wind at its back. It, I did a J hook and everything, and he cut the J hook. It was, 
it was crazy. It, it really was. I'm not going to lie. Cause I really tried to throw the dog off and I didn't have a chance. Um, but, but it's, but it's the ground disturbance. She talked a lot about that. It's like that ground disturbance that you're leaving. It, it's easy for animals that again, aren't used to seeing like there's not any animals in the woods unless you're a Bigfoot believer <laughs> that has a foot size that, that, as big as we do. Okay. Uh, at least in the lower 48 for the most part. Um, so it does disturb a lot of ground and that does cause, uh, you know, that crushing, like she talked about this, when you're stepping on grass and different vegetation, the crushing of that with your boot, like you don't notice it, but it's releasing odors and chemicals when that happens that a dog picks up on and exactly the same with a deer and they can see, they can, I guess visually, the way she describes it, it's going to be an interesting podcast if we do this, visually can kind of figure out that, hey, that's not, you know, deer. And then also, now of course, it may be smelling some other, you know, chemical that you might be, you know, whether whatever that could be on you that they're also picking up on, but just that large ground disturbance is the number one thing that her dog will pick up on. Um, other than of course, you know, just leftover scent. And she also talked about the winding aspect and how that dog will cast and be able to wind and also be able to pick up, um, also, um, different types of scent. It's, it's really interesting because she's coming at it from a very scientific or scientific base background. It's really interesting, but awesome. Well, uh, Greg, we absolutely appreciate you coming on this uh, podcast. I want you to kind of plug some of your books though. Uh, we had quite a, be, uh, quite a few people reach out to us after Bill's episode because he was talking about your book. Um, and I actually had it pulled up Oh my God. What is it? Uh, the your scrape book. Hold on here. Licking branch magic. Licking branch. Yep. Yep. And, and this goes into great detail on layouts. It gives ambush setups, how to use the brackets on food plots or not on food plots, travel quarters, et cetera. And it goes in great detail, probably more detail than you want, but there's a lot of detail in here. Um, then the other book is uh, monster whitetail buck magnet. That's the book about um, how you develop the property with quadrants. How do you get more, how do you have five, four or five bars in your property versus one for the bucks. And it also talks about how to uh, form neighborhood cooperatives. That's one thing I did do. When I first got my property, I formed a neighborhood cooperative uh, of all the land that touched my property. And it was interesting, you know, if I got just in a minute to tell a story. So uh, I told them that, yeah, we're only going to shoot four and five year olds. And uh, they all nodded, said, we would love to be part of that program, but none of them believed me. Right? This guy's just going to shoot them because they don't want us to shoot them. That's what he wants to do. Well, after two seasons of not hearing a single rifle shot, couple of them called me up and said, you're not lying, are you? You're, you're really doing this. I said, yeah. Now they're killing, you know, the guy to the south of me hadn't ever killed in 20 years anything bigger than a two-year-old. They've now shot three four-year-olds in the last five years. So I've got them all letting the one, two, and three-year-olds go. You know, managing the deer herd is a lot of fun. And, and it's, it's not just the fact that you got five year, more five and four-year-olds, but it's what you get to see in the woods. It's, it's magnificent to see, you know, three-year-olds fighting a four-year-old and, you know, and, and young bucks fighting. And it, there's just so much more that goes on when you have the, the herd structure, age structure. Um, so that's this book right here, Monster Whitetail Buck Magnet. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, of course, and people can go uh, check that out at uh, PressureDeerPro.com, uh, of course. Yes. And then all your other services. Can you talk a little bit about just kind of some of the services that y'all offer, just so people have an idea of kind of what Pressure Deer Pro sure. is about? Um, absolutely. Um, so we do uh, online assessments. So we call them cyber assessments of properties where, and it's not really super expensive. Let's say you had 
150 acres and you wanted to have us tell us how the, we would set it up or how would we hunt it, we do it looking at topo maps and, and, and uh, satellite photos and talking with you about the neighbors and what goes on. Because when you're assessing a piece of property, it's not just the property that the, the client has, it's what goes on at the neighbors. Because the neighbors can have a huge impact, right? So you may set up your property to take advantage of what they're doing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's right. And, you know, so, so the cyber assessments we do, we also go to people's properties. We've been all over the country uh, doing properties. Um, you know, lots of times Bill and I will go together. Uh, he's, he's different than me. I'm different than him. He's got different knowledge than I have. Um, he's taught me a lot. I've taught him some things, right? But you bring the both of us there. You're, you're, when, when we are done, you're going to have what I call a game change in your hunting if you haven't been having the success you want. Um, you know, you, so you'll go out and you'll buy a four-wheeler and you'll pay. Boy, if, if you look at the prices of four-wheelers lately. They're outrageous. They are outrageous. You know, so you go buy a new four-wheeler. That absolutely does nothing to help your hunting success, right? It sure is fun to have one. I got a beautiful side-by-side. -side. I love it. But, in, but anyway, so for a small investment, to change your hunting for the rest of your life is the advantage that you get if you bring us. And, and I'm being honest when I say that because we enjoy helping people and, and that's really what we're all about and teaching them everything we can. Absolutely. Well, Greg, we appreciate you coming on. Of course, everybody, you can check out the show notes below uh, for some of the different links. Uh, of course, like Pressure Deer Pros and go check that stuff out um, that Greg and Bill and Michael uh, Yates over there at Pressure Deer Pros has to offer. Again, Greg, thank you for coming on. I've already got a second episode in mind for you, but we're going to wait a little while before we do that one. I'll, I'll let you know what it'll be after this. Very interesting. to You forced me to think about stuff that I just naturally do that uh, you made me talk a little bit about. So it was it was pretty fun. Thank you. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast this show was literally made for you it is an excellent group of people that are going to be there a lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there you're going to get to talk to them shake their hand learn from them in person make some connections and guys we get a lot of questions about 
Hey, which saddle should I get? Which tree stand should I get? What about this piece of gear? What about that piece of gear? How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.